Welcome, and thank you for joining us today for the teaching and preaching ministry from Central Baptist Church, Kannapolis, North Carolina. As senior pastor, Dean Hunter shares from the Bible how to live in a fallen world. The goal of Central Baptist Church is to change the world by teaching the Word of God. Come, let's listen in. We'll be in the book of Isaiah this morning if you want to turn there. The major prophet Isaiah. If you've gotten through a dry and barren land, if you've gotten through a a trial or a challenge and you're safe on the other side, if you know him, you know you're there not because of you but because of him. People all over this sanctuary this morning, people watching who've been through battles, who've been through situations and scenarios that many of us wouldn't wish on our worst enemies. But they've they've made it through, they're making it through, and they can testify to the fact that God's been faithful. And I trust that we never forget it was him. Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. If you're worthwhile, and I think you are personally, and God does too, it's because of him. I was told a long, long time ago, I read it, if you ever see a turtle on a fence post, you know he didn't get there by himself. And I think we can all relate to that, that we're where we are because someone else put us there. I think even in the church world, I think in this church and in your personal life and my spiritual life, whether you're in the success in your life, you realize someone else paved the way, someone else cleared a path, someone else built a foundation, someone else men and women through the years were the trailblazers to allow us to be where we are. Not just in church, but in our country. May we never be ungrateful for those who paved the way. Most of us are selling on cruise control today because a lot of people had to work hard. And um, the more we understand that, the better off we are. Isaiah chapter six is where we'll be. Now that you found Isaiah, now you're flipping to six. If you found Isaiah chapter six, if you have, let's stand as we honor God's word. And in full disclosure this morning, this is part two of a biblical view of God. Started last week, acknowledging that God is. He exists, he is real. He is pre-existent before creation. He is self-existent, self-sufficient. He is far above any of the most brilliant people in here's imagination. He is not only existing, he is creator. He created all that is by his divine fiat. He spoke the world into existence according to the word of God. 
He created ex nihilo, something out of nothing. That's the power of God. He is, he is creator, and today I am going to probably take on the greatest challenge I've ever had, get you out by two, <laughs> preaching about the holiness of God. The holiness of God. Church, I'll say this plainly, simply, and try to elaborate with some scripture, but God is holy. There is none like him. And if we don't see or hear anything today, may we see God as holy, righteous, perfect, sinless, pure. Which, if we're honest, in our finite minds, we have to acknowledge we can't comprehend God's holiness. There's nothing like it. No one like it. There's no comparison to God. And Isaiah, who was called by God, you remember the here am I, send me. In Isaiah chapter 6, in these first five verses, the introduction of Isaiah's call of God, we see a picture of the holiness of God. Pretty much like no other in all of Scripture. In Isaiah 6, 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. It's hard not to preach like little preachy messages in every phrase here. He is on the throne and he is king. High and lifted up, he is higher than all others. He is superior. Upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train, the hem of his garment. Not a train as in a bride's dress. This is the hem of his garment, fills the room, fills the temple with his glory. Remember when the, the lady said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment. That's a glimpse, a fraction of a glimpse of the power of God that the hem of his robe fills the temple with his glory. That's not even touching him. That's touching his hem. That's how powerful God is. That's how glorious God is. That's how holy God is, is that the temple was full of his glory just because of the power in the hem of his robe. And above it, above what? The throne. Above the throne that God is sitting on, there were seraphims, angels, funny looking angels, with six wings, three pairs, two covering their face two covering their feet, and two to fly with. And one cried unto the other. These are the seraphim, these are the angels, yelling, shouting, crying to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Through finite eyes and minds 
Imagine the room of the temple filled with the glory of God while angels, we don't know how many, are hovering above the throne day and night saying to each other, it's a, it's a dialogue back and forth. It's a polylogue because they're all bouncing around. Holy, holy, holy. This is the, the picture of the holiness of God. On a throne above all others, with the whole room full of his glory. What does that feel like? I don't know. I know what it sounds like. It sounds like angels who were created by God himself crying out his holiness to one another. It's almost as if they were trying to outdo each other. No, he's holy. No, holy. No, holy. Forever. The whole earth is full of his glory. And as they are shouting back and forth, the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. I, I promise I'm going to preach eventually, but you got you to hear this. The post of the door moved at the voice. Doorposts move when the foundations shake. The foundation of the room is not shaking because of the voice of God. He is so holy that their reference to him being holy shakes the foundation of the building. The house was filled with smoke. That's nothing mystical, by the way. That's most likely incense being burned as an offering to God. When Isaiah saw it, verses one through four, he saw it, he says, woe is me. For I am undone. That word undone means destroyed. I am worthless. I am useless. I am nothing. Because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I love this part. If you don't enjoy anything in the message today, we can all relate to Isaiah. And I'm in the middle of a bunch of unclean people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king. Church, believer, unbeliever, there is only one king. The Lord of hosts. Father, thank you for your word. May we not just hear another sermon today, but may we see you as who you are. Holy, perfect, righteous. And in doing so, we certainly we'll see who we are and our great need for you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. For the last couple weeks, few weeks, we've been highlighting this word perspective and how our perspective changes when we have new life in Christ, how we think differently, how we think biblically, how we see life biblically and my opinion is that we can't truly see life biblically and see life events and circumstances biblically until we've been born again. But certainly what gives us a clarity to life's experiences and perspective in life is seeing who God is. If we're a believer, born again Christian, we know it all starts and all ends with God. 
as creator, as sustainer, in his preexistence, we understand that he is above and beyond all things. In Sunday school this morning, there was a back and forth conversation, discussion, and then someone spoke up and said, yes, he's sovereign, which is a lot of times kind of underappreciated, mainly because it's not understood, because it's so above us. But as we look at this idea of perspective, I thought because it's going to be so challenging today, I would give us a few ideas of different perspectives. And this is a various perspectives of someone who has fallen into a pit, fell in a hole, can't get out. Y'all ready? The optimist comes by and says, that's not that bad. The pessimist comes by and says, it'll probably get worse. The county inspector asks if you had a permit for that pit. <laughs> a news reporter wanted to do an exclusive report on the pit. The, IRA, the IRS agent came by and wanted to know if you had paid taxes on that pit. A Pharisee came by and said, only bad people fall in pits. The Christian scientist, Tom Cruise, comes by and says, you only think you're in that pit. Joel Osteen comes by and says, just confess that you're not in that pit. Since I picked on Joel, a good Baptist comes by and says, that's nothing. You ought to see my pit. <laughs> Everybody has a different perspective about their situation. There's always at least two conflicting perspectives in life. If you got two people in a room talking about a subject, you'll probably get a couple different perspectives most often. Today, I want us to look specifically at who God is, not as just preexistent creator, but the scriptures teach us over and over and over the fact that God is holy. We're not talking about an attribute of God. We're talking about a synonym for God. God is holy. In these five verses, we see a lot that's not really the message. It's kind of an introduction to the point, which is probably not very homiletically pleasing to a theologian or a preacher. But we see God's position in these few verses. I've already alluded to the fact that God is high and lifted up. He's on the throne. It speaks of his sovereignty. It's interesting that in Isaiah's vision of God, he sees him on a throne, on the throne, above all. Uh, so this is kind of in the beginning. And, but yet in Revelation, John sees God in Revelation 4, 2, on a throne, seated high above all. It, it may not mean much to you, but uh, he's never left being sovereign. He's never left being king. He's been on the throne since the beginning, and he'll be on the throne at the end. 
So even though we don't understand and sometimes don't like all that's going on on man's thrones, we understand he is still on the throne. He's not shocked when someone else is kicked off their throne. He wasn't shocked when somebody put the American king on his throne. Still confused as to how he got there when nobody voted for him. I'll stop. I don't want you going there. You're going to mess it up. The point is, we live our life with leaders, corruption. We have no idea what it looks like, honestly, to see leaders who are not corrupt at a federal level. That's sad to say, and I'm not saying they're all criminals. Some people believe that. I'm just saying it's hard for us to even imagine federal leadership that's not corrupt because we know so much corruption. And I'll tell you this, I mean, I don't, if we know the corruption that makes it to the news, we still only know a little bit of the corruption. That's just the ones and the little bit that got caught. I've said a million times in the last eight and a half years of being a local, a local elected official, when I see the, the silly, crazy, I won't say corruption, but just how things work in good old Rowan County, I'll tell people, and I told somebody just last week sitting on the steps at the, anyway, and I said, man, it just makes me think of how messed up it is federally. That's encouraging. Let's go home. The encouragement is no matter how corrupt it is here, no matter how much, how many more documents we find or whatever else, that God is still sovereign and he is king and nothing affects that. Nothing. That, that diagnosis, that, oh my goodness, what is happening to my family? What's happening to me? I can't believe this has happened. God is not taken back by that. He is still sovereign. He is still in control. This train is filled the temple. His greatness is seen. The seraphim represent the holiness of God and the fact that, uh, once again, they're, they're a little different looking, but they're covering their eyes from the holiness and the brilliance of God's divine glory. Their feet are covered also as a, an idea of submission. Hey, it's like when Moses walks up on this burning bush it's, it's God's presence. And he says, hey, take your, take your shoes off. You're on holy ground. Oh, what a, what a long way we've come from honoring God and his holiness and the holiness of where he dwells. How did we get there? How did we come so far? How did the church come so far from recognizing the holiness of God? How did the culture, the lost man used to at least acknowledge God and in some ways acknowledge his holiness? People have no reverence for God. People have no reverence for God's house. Now I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna sound old fashioned here for a second. It's all right, so I'm not saying I understand that we're, we're the temple of God and he dwells in us. But you, can, you don't, have, don't have to have a verse for this. But this place, this church represents the holiness of God in where we meet and, and hang out with him. Not that the place is holy. 
Y'all have heard me before. I'm not teaching something that's not true. But I think it goes without saying there's a little common sense that God's house, the place, the, the church that we come to meet collectively ought to be honored and reverenced. Now I'll stop there because I'll start to upset some people. But I don't think you have to be a theologian to make the connection between Isaiah walking in or not even walking, visualizing the presence of God and the holiness of God and the unholiness of him to think, oh, we need to start to reverence God and his things a little more than we have. Some are saying, oh, I wish you would say a little bit more. And some are saying, stop, that's enough. Covering their feet in submission. And they use the other two to fly. Now, I don't know about you. This is serious business, but, but I, I always visualize a hummingbird when I see it. I don't know why. I don't want to change the subject, but can you imagine a hummingbird with six wings and, and how they go? Um, but anyway, I, I don't know what they look like, but I know they're, what they looked like meant something. God is holy. Can't see his holiness. Can't look at the face of God. And in the midst of this, they are talking to one another, saying, holy, holy, holy. The word holy here, um, man has kind of messed up the word, but the word holy for God is important for us to understand that it, it really means separated. Deep down, the word means to cut off. And in its simplest, maybe our understanding of the holiness of God, it's the word, the English word comes in uh, a transcendency. That his holiness is cut apart from, it is above and beyond, it is transcendent upon, upon, above any of our possible understanding of holiness. It's a transcendental holiness. To say it three times is something that the, the Hebrew language, the Jews would use often to overemphasize something. Jesus even used it several times when he would repeat words or repeat phrases. And these angels are emphatically stating over and over that God is transcendentally more holy, above, cut above, cut outside of, above and beyond any understanding of holiness. Even in Revelation 4, the same words are said in reference. The four beasts in Revelation 4, 8 are saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Not only is the repetition um, indicative of his transcendental holiness, it, it's also an indication of the Trinity. Holy, holy, holy. The Trinity. In Isaiah 6, 1 through 5, we see the text that we just read, but in verse 8, he actually says when he asked the question uh, that Isaiah responds to, God says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? The implication is not only the Trinity, but more importantly, the holiness, the transcendental 
incomprehensible holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy. The songwriter said, Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to thee. Though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see, only thou art holy, there is none beside thee. There is no competition with God. Now in the Bible, we see, a lot of, we see several competitions with God. But the outcome indicates there was no competition to begin with. I love Elijah. I love Elijah on Mount Carmel. I love the fact that I've been on top of Mount Carmel where Elijah did, did business. And I, I think Elijah had a little streak of sarcasm in him. I don't know, maybe. They're in the middle of a drought. The God that answers by fire is the God. I won't tell you the whole thing. You probably know it. And in the middle of a drought where God, where, what's his name? Elijah had prayed and stopped the rain for seven years. He says, hey, go get some water and fill up the trenches around this watered down sacrifice. Now, if you don't appreciate that, then I don't like you. I'm just, and you probably don't like me. And they're like, what, it's a drought. I don't care, get it. I don't know where they got it from. Probably somebody's drinking water, I don't know. They're ticked off. Now they're doubly ticked off. And they're about to be triply ticked off when their God doesn't answer and the only God answers and they all die. That's usually a bad ending. And the reality we see when we look at the holiness of God, when we see who God is, is that hey, this thing wasn't fair from the beginning because he has no competition. There is none beside thee, perfect in power and love and purity. All the days when the, the songs used to sing doctrine and theology. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. All thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sing. We sing it so fast. The works, your works, his creation, praise him. The songwriter said. Not just talking about an attribute of God, we're talking about who he is. The Leviticus, Levitical law, Leviticus 19.2, speaking to the congregation of the children of Israel, say unto them, be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Peter referenced that, be holy because it's written, be holy for I am holy. A.W. Tozer, you probably read some things behind him potentially, said, we cannot grasp the true meaning of divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. His holiness was indicated by the foundation of the building moving, shaking, the doors, the doorpost, all from the recognition of the voice of someone talking about him, not from his voice. I believe it's a lesson to us that when we believers, when we truly begin to recognize the holiness of God and acknowledge the holiness of God, Pardon the cheesiness, but there'll be some shaking. 
there'll be some movement. If a created soulless angel can shout his name, shout who he is, recognizing his holiness, and it shake the very foundation of the temple, surely thousands, millions of born-again Christians who began collectively and in unity to speak, live out the holiness of God, we could see some shaking, not just in this country, but in this world. Now let's be honest, when we start speaking and living out his holiness here in this community, hey, that's a much easier task than the world. Can it happen? Absolutely, he's God. He's sovereign. He's on the throne. Little, little side note here. I believe a lot of us, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't wanna be mean, I don't wanna be mean or critical, honestly, when I'm saying this. Um, our fear is a result of us not acknowledging who he is. Now, I, I've said this before, I, I don't wanna go to jail. Man, that don't sound like fun to me. I'm not looking for a fight. I'm not looking to break the law. But I'm not afraid of a man or a royal man or woman who is royal by man's recognition. When it comes to the comparison of fearing supreme royalty, God, my job is to please him. My job is ultimately going to be judged by him. And church, I know this is not popular, and I know there's not, not any breaking news right this second that's rolling on the screen at Fox News, but the day is coming, and if you can't see it, then you're blind. The day is coming where we're going to have to not choose because the choice has already been made, but we're going to have to stand up for who we've already chosen to be loyal to. And if we can't do it among our peers, among our classmates, among our workers, we're going to be in a mess when we have to do it and stand tall in the face of leaders, city leaders, county leaders, state leaders, federal leaders. And you, you would have to be completely out of your mind to think the day's not coming. Now, I hope it doesn't come next week. But it's coming. And I believe this, as much as I'm standing here, I believe it will be a part of the refining of God to prove and to demonstrate who really is and who really isn't. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord. But he'll say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Broad is the path that leads to destruction, and many there be who find it, and narrow is the way to life, and few there be who find it. How does that happen when 70% of the nation's population claim to be Christian? I don't know what the real percentage is, and it's not my job, but one day it'll be known. How are we getting there? How are we getting there? And I'm gonna tell you one way we're gonna get there. 
is when everyone who professes to be a Christian has to make a decision of who is God and who is not God. Now, some of you are getting antsy because you say, well, he must be a conspiracy theorist. I'm not 100% one, but I like to talk to him. No, I don't have to be a conspiracy theorist. I got to have a half a brain stem and a little common sense to see where we're headed. So, but that's political. No, that's the world you live in. And we're citizens of two countries. I'm a proud American citizen. I like America. I love America. I celebrate America, even with our craziness. But this is not my home. And I'm, I'm just on a, I'm on a mission trip right now, but I'm headed to where I truly belong. And knowing that changes my perspective of who I honor more than the other. And there is no comparison. There is no competition. Church, believer, there is no competition between God and another leader. Yeah, we honor them. Yeah, Romans is still in effect. And we pray for them and we hope the best and we cross our fingers and toes and hope they don't do something else dumb the next day. And we honor them for their leadership in our lives, whether we like it or not. And respect their position, but not above God. There is no comparison. There is no competition. He is God alone. And I believe the sooner the church, the individuals of the church, start to profess it, understand it, and live it out, we'll see a difference. We'll see a difference. See a difference in our families. We'll see a difference in our churches. We'll see a difference in our towns. Jesus, when he taught us the Lord's Prayer or the how to pray as believers, you remember how he started? Our Father which art in heaven. Y'all know the next line? Hallowed. Holy be thy name. I never thought about this, but I study occasionally for Sunday mornings at least, and I was reading and studying, and he doesn't say, holy is your name. He says, holy be, hallowed be your name. Jesus' prayer was for God's name to be considered holy. He was not in his prayer just acknowledging the holiness of God. If he would, if he had said, God is holy, holy is your name. Holy be your name. It's our job as believers through Jesus teaching us to pray that we live our lives, that we preach the way we do so that God is made holy by man. Now, he's holy regardless. But it's our job to lift up his holiness. And our prayer is that he be hallowed, be considered holy. I read a quote, I won't tell you who it is because some of you don't like this person, but it's a good quote. God's kingdom, it wasn't Joel. God's kingdom will never come where his name is not considered holy. That was a prayer, thy kingdom come. Notice his response, I'm a man of unclean lips. I gotta cut to the chase. When we see God for who he is, it is impossible to not see us for who we are. When we think about the holiness of God, I wanna, I wanna, Really quickly, I hope, hit two biblical perspectives that ought to change or at least be highlighted about our view of God. First is the biblical perspective of the righteousness of God. 
holiness and righteousness are, are minimum first cousins. Remember, holiness means to cut off. The word righteous is, this is, I wish it was better than this and I could preach it out better. It means to make straight. To make straight. The opposite of straight, at least one opposite, is crooked. Now, if we did name association and I said crooked, you would probably call out a name. <laughs> Don't do it. But I got a feeling some of the names that I heard would be the same. And I, and I don't know a, a great way to make this fun and preachy other than to say, when we think of crooked, we think of impure, unholy, unrighteous, sin, politic, you get right? We think everything that's not right is crooked. Everything that's not straight is crooked. Now let's just cut to the chase. Everything we see in life is crooked. I didn't say everybody in your life is crooked. I might have to back up and explain again because you're like, what does he know? How did he find out? The world has been affected by sin from the beginning. Therefore, this world is crooked. Or this world is not straight. There is nothing in this world straight. Well, what about Christians who are believers and put their faith and trust in Christ? We are we're sinners. There is none righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of What about a perfect little uh, 12-year-old who is studying to be a, a priest? He's a sinner. We're all sinners. We're, we've all been affected by sin. Therefore, we live in a crooked and perverse world. That sounds biblical. There is only, there is only one person there is only one, I hate to use the word thing, there's only one holy, perfect, righteous, straight in existence, and it's God. It is God. It changes our biblical perspective of the righteousness of God. God is straight. Now, the only picture that we ever see of a straight, uncrooked, untainted by sin human Ooh, perk up. Not Jesus, although he was, is Adam and Eve. Pre-fall, right? They had never sinned. They were God's creation. They were crown of God's creation. And God hung out with them every day. He fellowshiped with them. He walked with them. He talked with them along life. You got it right. He, he's, he's hanging out with them every morning. But when they sinned, things changed. They became corrupt. They became crooked. They became unstraight. They became unrighteous. And there were immediate consequences. God excommunicated them from the garden, put a few more seraphim there, and the Bible says in Genesis 3, a flaming everlasting sword, which I don't know what that looked like, but it looked like that in my mind when I saw it. 
It's like a, a ninja swinging a sword of fire with no ninja there. Probably didn't, but it says, anyway. It, it spoke of the consequences of, of unrighteousness. The consequences of, there's no longer fellowship with a right, straight, holy God when you sin. So there was immediate consequences and Paul follows up in Romans and says, hey, because of them, all of us are crooked. There are none righteous, no, not one. There is none straight, no, not one. God is righteous. He is straight. The psalmist, all through the Psalms, he talks about it, and that would waste time if I just read them all. But Psalm 119, he says, Righteous art thou, O Lord, and upright are thy judgments. I want you to hear these. I selected these verses on purpose. Righteous art thou, O Lord, and upright, straight, are your judgments. Psalm 119, 137. Psalm 145, 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and, all, and holy in all his works. Psalm 19, verse 8 and 9. The statutes, which are precepts and principles, commands of God, of the Lord are right. Talking about the righteousness of God. Rejoicing the heart, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now, I didn't read this in a commentary, but I'm sure it's there somewhere. When I read these verses, and I read a lot of other verses from the Word of God about the righteousness of God, here's what it assures us. Here's the perspective change for a believer. You ready? God is perfect. God is right. God is straight. You ready? For the, in other words, these verses teach us that everything God is and does is right. So you, you spent all that time to tell us that. When we understand the holiness of God as incomprehensible in our finite pea brains as we can, and we understand the best we can that God is pure, righteous, and everything he is, according to the text, and everything he does is right, it changes our perspective. Church, let's just get, let's get practical. Not everything we go through and everything we see seems right. Now, not every decision we made to get us in the position we're in did God have anything to do with it. If we're honest, oh God, I, I wish you would pay off this credit card bill. Well, you said if you ask anything in your name, you would do it according to your will, but I'm still drawing 27% interest. That's ungodly. You're right. It's unrighteous. It's crooked. It's not straight. If we acknowledge that God is righteous, everything he is and everything he does 
is right. Not everything we are and everything we do, even as righteous believers, but that everything God does is right and everything he is is right. Church, this is so simple. It changes our perspective. When we understand that God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts, we understand the psalmist said his, his knowledge is so high I can't attain it. But yet we know by faith that his word teaches that everything he does is right. I wouldn't have done it that way. Well, you're not God. And I wouldn't have done it that way. And sometimes it's not like, oh, oh, well, God punished them. I wouldn't have punished them. No. Or God gave mercy to them, and I wouldn't have gave mercy to them. No, what he does is right. And we have to also understand, I don't want to get too deep in this, but our perspective, our humanity, Our human perspective is flawed. And what we consider right doesn't necessarily mean it's right. Or what we think should happen, even in our best days as a Christian, doesn't mean it compares to God's perfect ways. His ways are perfect. His ways are right. He is holy. He is righteous. And everything he does is right. Therefore, we should not just understand his righteousness. We should have a different perspective of recognition of God, the recognition of God. I knew this would happen. When we begin to understand who God is, that's when we begin to understand the recognition he deserves. All-sufficient, self-sufficient, pre-existent creator of the universe. He is the only one worthy of worship. The word worship is used in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Of course, one's Hebrew and one's Greek, and I think it ought to challenge our understanding and how we worship. Now, when I say worship, immediately people are thinking, okay, which end of the spectrum are we on? We hooping and hollering and acting like a bunch of monkeys at a circus, or are we sitting back, closing our eyes and reflecting and, mm, or whatever? That's not what I'm talking about. The word worship in the Old Testament is a, it's a word that means to depress, not like mentally, but to depress, to prostrate, as in homage to royalty. It's used a lot in the Old Testament. In Nehemiah, Ezra's preaching, listen to what he does. Ezra's preaching, and he blessed the Lord, Nehemiah 8, 6, and said, the great, he blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen. That's in the Old Testament they said amen. People still wonder, does it bother you if somebody says amen? No. Does it bother you if somebody shouts? No. Um, does it bother you if somebody dances? Kinda. <laughs> I, I think I've seen about all of it. Now, I'm not saying everything I saw was of God, but I think I've seen a lot. I pretty much saw the worm one time at, um, at a church. <laughs> I don't think that was a God. It was actually somebody running and failed, but they kind of halfway did the worm when they did it. So. But that's not the worship we're talking about. 
We're talking about our recognition of God. When Ezra is preaching and they're saying amen and amen, lifting their hands, it says in verse six, they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. I, I, I ended up on this a few Sundays ago. I think it's important. I'm not going to go through it all again. But when we understand who God is, it'll, it'll affect our worship. It will affect our posture, our mental and our physical posture when we understand who he is. We won't go skedaddling with our, with our $100 shoes into his presence as if, hey, we're going to see the wizard. This is God. And we reverence him. And we understand him. So why don't we do that every time we walk into church? Well, because we, we haven't seen him. We haven't, we haven't had a glimpse of him. I don't say we come into church and everybody put their head down oh, and start walking around like a bunch of monks. No, I think there's a, there's a New Testament principle where we're fellowshipping and worshiping and we're united together. We're hanging out and we're, we're getting COVID and all the other things we get from each other. And I think that's a part of the New Testament church. But when the word of God is open or when songs are sung and we start to magnify and lift up and describe God, we, we start to get a glimpse of who he is and, and our posture changes. And we, we prostrate ourselves. We depress ourselves. We bow our heads and hold our hands up in acknowledgement of royalty. We're in the presence of God. And the New Testament's used in it it, it's not the same as depress or de, to depress or prostrate. It's a, a fun word that means to move forward. I, I, it's real simple. When we see him as who he is, it, we want to draw near. We want to move forward to him. We want to come to him. We want to worship him. We don't want to... Oh, get away from him. Uh, last week I told you about, uh, well, I didn't tell you like for the first time, but when, um, when Peter and them had a bad fishing night and then um, Jesus taught and then said, hey, y'all go out and cast your nets. And I did and the nets broke and they filled up both the boats. And Peter's response was, oh my goodness, you're God and I'm unworthy. But what he did was, it's in the text too, you don't have to turn there. Um, remember when Peter walked on water? It was a nice, calm day, and he's out there just hanging out, skipping rocks and walking on water, right? And he took his eyes off of Jesus, and the winds and the storms came up. And Jesus reached in as he began to sink, screaming like a crazy woman. Oh, save me. And he picks him up, and he calmed the seas. You know what happens after that? It says everybody in the boat came to him because they, he was God. This, I know I probably should have preached that. Y'all look more interested in that. Or is it, they came to him. The people in the boat ran to him, came to him, worshiped him. Yeah, I'll throw this out there just for fun. You know a good place where we can all hang out together and come to him and worship him? I know. Some of you found it today. Why did we do that? Well, they'll probably send me a letter if I don't come two weeks in a row. <laughs> Sunday school teacher will probably call and then I'll have to make something up. Why did you come today? Don't, don't answer, please don't. She made me. 
What a difference our church service would be when people, I'm, I'm, when we all, I get down there and sit with y'all, when we all get together and say, you know what, let's, let's come worship him today. The word actually means you gotta do something. Mark, turn off online. No. Well, I can worship him here. Please don't read into this. This is just for fun. If you want to leave now, it's a good time to slip out. Um, I can go to church at home just as well as I can go to church at church. Don't get me wrong. There's some people watching right now who would rather be here. I think the physical church is muy importante. All right? I think it's how, how God expects it to happen. And I think it's how we're mobilized to go out and do the Great Commission together in community. I thank God for live streaming. I thank God for podcasts. I thank God for what's going on right now. And the men, whoever's up there in that dark, mysterious room, um, who make it possible. Honestly, I do. We spend money on it. We got great equipment to make it happen. So don't read me wrong. But what a difference churches would be if true believers loved God and honored God enough to where their desire was to get up and come to him and worship together. And for the right reason, to worship him. I think we do that. I think we start to honor him for who he is, see him for who he is, which will very clearly describe to us who we are and our great need for him, and then we communicate that message to other people, I think we'll see a difference in our own personal life, in our family life, in our church life, in our work life, in our school life, in our community life, in our state life, in our national life, and in the world. It makes a difference to come to him. I had pulled out Luke chapter two, but that was Christmas, but... Remember what the wise men did? They knew who he was. They came, the Bible says, uses the word to worship him. They didn't sit back and say, well, we'll, we'll, find, we'll read about it. That's silly. No, they knew who he was. They knew to expect him. And when he arrived, they said, we gotta go to worship him. We gotta take some initiative because we understand who he is that he's worthy of worship. He's worthy of me making some motion toward him. That's a biblical view of worship, a biblical view of his recognition, who he is. Oh, there's so much more there, and it's now five after, and I haven't kept you that long in about forever in this whole year. Let me do this. We're going to get out early tonight. Pastor Barry's preaching so you Cowboys fans can go watch them lose. Karen, won't you come up, please? And I want to conclude with this because I think it would not do justice. When we talk about who God is and that he is creator and he is holy 
and he is righteous, and we have an understanding of who he is, which demonstrates an understanding of who we are. And as Paul said, we're none of us righteous. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And I, I don't want to dig deeper because of time, but there's some, there's some conversation going on in, in the theological world about some things that I'd rather just not be a part of because I think it's detrimental and not very helpful. But understanding that God is perfect, God is holy, and God is just, it would tend to make a person feel as if there was no help. A lost person who doesn't know what I know, who hasn't been in church and been discipled and studied like I've studied, to think, how could somebody like that come to God? If he is this and I am this, then how would that happen? Here, here's the fourth point, and this is going to be the fastest I've ever preached a point. Not just an attribute of God. God is love. God is not just loving. The Bible says he is love. It is who he is. This righteous, holy, perfect, sovereign, above all king is himself love. It's who he is. And when we understand this, and I, and I hope this makes an impact, when we understand, as believers understand, who God is, and when we teach a lost person who God is, church, this, this, could be a, this would have been a, a rabbit trail, but God doesn't change his mind on the things that he's already set in stone. No matter how bad somebody's feelings get hurt. Was and is and is to come. Same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Ironically enough, he put a lot of it in stone. God didn't change his mind because the church thought it would be a better demonstration of God's love to accept sin and breaking of his commandments. Still the same. So it's hard sometimes to, to mesh that God, this God of justice, this God of perfection could allow me to have a relationship with him. When we understand who he is, we understand who we are, it makes a verse like John 3.16 a little more clear. That God, God creator, God pre-existent, self-sufficient, God holy, perfect God. God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus, his son. See, it was impossible. Remember the, the seraphim and the flaming sword at the gate, the east side of, of Eden? Impossible. You're not getting back in fellowship. It's impossible for man to come to God except through Jesus. For God loved the world so much that he sent his only begotten son. We know this verse. We've learned this verse. It's our favorite verse. But think about who that God is. 
that in his perfection, his holiness, his righteousness, his straightness, that he made a way for sinful, unrighteous, crooked man to come to him. He loved us so much he sent Jesus. Whoever places their trust in him, believeth in him, doesn't have to perish but can have everlasting life. I think Romans 5, 8 is a good verse to go with John 3, 16. But God demonstrated his love toward us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God is love, and the demonstration of his love was to send Jesus so that we could be reconciled back to him. May we never, ever see the holiness, righteousness, purity, judgment, righteous judgment of a holy God without acknowledging that he's a God of love, a God of grace, and a God of mercy, to whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Would you stand with me? God, thank you for your word that's so clear. I pray that above all today, we have some been reminded, some been informed of who you are. That you are above all. You are perfect. You are holy. You are righteous. You are worthy of our worship. And there's none other worthy of our worship. God, I pray today that Christians would be encouraged to know that we have a relationship with you through your son, Jesus. And I pray if there's a lost person here today, someone who's never accepted your son, Jesus, as their savior, maybe today would be the day that they, maybe for the first time they realize the problem and what separated us from God, us from you. And today would be today, but by faith, through your grace and mercy, they would accept your gift of salvation, which was your son, Jesus, who in doing so gives us reconciliation with you. Thank you for listening today. If you'd like to know more about Central Baptist Church, events and ministries, please visit our webpage at cbckannapolis.com.